solely on his good pleasure, sovereign good pleasure, okay? Does the New Testament teach election? Yes, it does. We looked at verses last week, like Acts 13:48, which says, When the Gentiles heard the message, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, as many as been appointed unto eternal life believed, okay? And we look at a lot of verses like that. All right, today, we start with how does, number three, how does the New Testament present the teaching of election? Is that correct? First thing on your notes, how does the New Testament present the teaching of election? Um, now, I say, I say this because uh, oftentimes um, people, when they hear about election, they think this is such a cold, heartless thing. You know, how can God, can God be so cruel? And they, all these things. And one of the reasons for this is, is because Calvinists sometimes can be cold and heartless and cruel. The way they come across they can be really, I've seen them in action. Oh, what are you doing to these pe poor people here? You know, they're showing no compassion whatsoever. And it's presented in a cold, heartless manner. However, the Bible doesn't present it that way. New Testament never presents it in a cold, heartless manner. It doesn't come across that way in the scripture. Uh, how does the Bible present election? A, the New Testament presents election as a comfort to believers. Let's turn to Romans 28 to 30. Someone can read that section. Again, I know we've read it. I know you guys have heard this probably a million times, but uh, Romans 8, and I said last week, actually Romans 8, 28 to 30 do go together. We tend to quote Romans 8, 28 in isolation, but actually there's, you know, it, what follows it is very important too. Romans 8, 28 to 30. Yeah, and that whole section is, uh, is presented as, as something that's comforting to us because God works for the good of those, right? And in the, in the, for the good of those who love him. And he causes all things to work for the good of those who love him. That's a comforting thought, especially when you're going through all kinds of, you know, everybody in this room is maybe right now going through some kind of grief. Jimmy, what are you going to say? Good point. Yeah. Uh, and so... Uh, it's a, it's a comfort to us to know that God is with us and, you know, all of us face uh, some kind of sadness in life or grief of many different varieties. Uh, there's, you know, I think of certain things during the week and I, it, it kind of make me sad or depressed or whatever somewhat. Or you're facing something like that or you're going through, we just went through this uh, with Kara, you know, our niece who died. And that was very difficult, especially when I think about the family members. You know, I think about her sister, I think about her husband, I think about the family, the other siblings and all that, and I, and I think, man, it's so difficult. 28 years old, we were there when that took place, you know. So, uh, but you think, they were believers. She was a believer, too. You think about that, and you think, well, it's comforting to know that, you know, that God knows all these things, and, and not only that, it goes on to say, he's, by the way, he's conformed us. This is his plan. He's, conformed to the, he's conforming us to the image of Christ and, and all these things. So, in the midst of all the tragedy in the world and difficulties and problems and sadness of all kinds, on all kinds of levels, you know, God is there to comfort us. Uh, Ephesians 1.5, listen to Ephesians 1.5, I have this in your notes, I think. He predestined us to adoption as sons. First of all, to, to be adopted is a blessing, right? 
when, when Mike adopted the child in China, Wendell, you, it's, it's right up here. It's up here, sorry about that. Somebody else coming? I can't remember. Uh, Wendell, uh, Wendell. <laughs> Wendell chapter one, verse five. Uh, yeah, it says he predestined us to adoption. Adoption itself is a comforting thought to know that, you know, someone loves you out there, right? Uh, some parent. Now, God loves us and uh, adopted us to himself. And then it goes on to say, according to the kind intention of his will. The kind intention of his will. It was very kind of God, in other words, to do this for us. It was, it was an act of kindness. So uh, we talk about comforting thoughts. You know, you have a, we have a kind Heavenly Father, right? who is uh, kind to us and loving. You know, I think of Matthew 7 where it says, uh, Jesus said, uh, ask and it will be given you. And he says, what father is, is there who doesn't try to do good for his children, you know? And how much more, you being evil, are able to do good for your children, how much more are your heavenly father give good things to those who ask him? So you think about the comfort that he is. Doctrine is meant to comfort us. It, it's meant to let us know we belong to him. He's chosen us, not for any goodness of our own, but we belong to him. We're his. And he works on our behalf. You know, and if Paul, when Paul looks at the distant past, he sees God working through election. God chose some to himself for his own reasons, for salvation. If he looks at the recent past, he can see, you know, in the lives of the Thessalonian believers or whoever, God chose you to salvation. We look at those verses. If he looks into the future, he, he realizes God's going to give us glorified bodies for the believers. And so, why, with all these things being true, why wouldn't, he work, why wouldn't God work in our present circumstances for our good right now and for his glory? And for, now, we don't always understand that because we think, well, why is he doing this and why is he doing that? Why didn't he do it this way? Why didn't he do it that way? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? What about Kara? And all of us ask these questions because we can't avoid asking questions like this. But in the, in, when it's all said and done, uh, it's meant to be a comforting doctrine to us. Um, B, the New Testament presents election as a reason to praise God. It's, it's given as a reason to praise God. Ephesians 1, 5, and 6. Again, there it is on your notes. He predestined us to adoption as sons. If, I, if it's not on your notes, let me know, okay? As sons through Jesus Christ himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Why? To the praise of his glory. The praise of the glory of his grace, right? We're doing this because he deserves praise, and this predestination election ultimately gives God praise. And the doctrine is not, is not intended to make us proud, but to humble us. Now, there's some, again, the hardcore Calvinists that are, the, I should say the harsh Calvinists that are out there that advertise themselves as Calvinists. Everything in their world revolves around Calvinism. I'm not saying I'm not a Calvinist. I'm saying everything in their, in their world is, is based on the five points. That's all they ever think about, nothing else. And uh, they uh, sometimes can be very proud. You know, I'm one of the elect. Well, that's because God was gracious to you. That's the only reason. You have no business. You didn't earn this at all. Uh, it's meant to humble us. Um, we should praise him and be humbled. Spurgeon said this. Uh, he says, I think election to a saint is one of the most stripping doctrines in all the world. Stripping. To take away all trust in the flesh or all reliance upon anything except Jesus Christ. How often do we wrap ourselves in our own righteousness? and array ourselves with the false pearls and gems of our own works and doings. We begin to say, now I shall be saved because I have this and that evidence. Instead of, instead of that, it is naked faith that saves. That faith and that alone unites to the Lamb, ir irrespective of works, although it is productive of them. 
How often do we learn, lean on some work other than that of our own beloved and trust in some might other than that which comes from on high? Now, if we would have this might taken from us, we must consider election. Pause, my soul, and consider this. God loved thee before thou hast a being. He loved thee. We weren't even alive and he loved us, okay? He loved thee when thou wast dead in trespasses and sins uh, and sent his son to die for thee. He purchased thee with his precious blood ere thou didst, could lisp his name. Canst thou be proud? Is it, is it possible to be proud in these circumstances? By the way, you guys ever hear of the son of Sam back in the 70s in New York? And uh, I was talking to a guy the other day, and he said, he talked about, he brought up the son of Sam, David Berkowitz. He brought up David Berkowitz's name. And I said, David Berkowitz? He said, yeah. He says, I correspond with him. I said, wait a minute. Are you talking about the son of Sam? He said, yeah. The guy in the 70s in New York, he said, yeah, that was killing people. I said, you correspond with the son of Sam. Is that what you're telling me? This is last week. He said, yes. I said, how is this? Well, he's in prison. I said, well, I, I didn't know. I mean, I knew he went to prison because he killed all these people, and he should have been in prison, and, and worse. But uh, he's in prison, and he says, yeah, I've been corresponding with this guy periodically. He became a believer in prison. I said, the son of Sam? He said, yeah. <laughs> and I went to, there's a website you can go to, arisenshine.something. I think it is. I went there and looked at it. He's got his testimony all over the place, and he says, I regret killing those people, and I met with the families, and I told them I regretted it. Of course, they weren't, I'm sure they weren't happy with that anyway, which I understand. And uh, nevertheless, he says he's saved, and I'm not saying he's not saved, but here's the point. I mean, God loved David Berkowitz before time began. Apparently, if David Berkowitz is saved, and he, you know, he loved him to, enough to save him, you know, it reminds you of Paul, who was killing Christians and so on, and then God saved him. So you, you think about those kind of things. Election, right? Spurgeon says, I know nothing, nothing again that is more humbling for us than this doctrine of election. I have sometimes fallen prostrate before it when endeavoring to understand it. I have stretched out my wings, and eagle-like I have soared towards the sun. Steady has, my, has been my eye, and true my wing for a season. But when I came near it, and the one thought possessed me, God hath from the beginning, he quotes 2 Thessalonians, God hath from the beginning chosen you unto salvation. When I thought about that, he says, I was lost in its luster. I was staggered with the mighty thought, and from the, driz, the dizzy elevation, down came my soul, prostrate and broken, saying, Lord, I am nothing. I am less than nothing. Why me? Why me? Friends, if you want to be humbled, study election, for it will make you humble under the influence of God's Spirit. He who is proud of his election is not elect. He who is humbled under a sense of it may believe that he is. He has every reason to believe that he is, for it is one of the most blessed effects of election that it helps us to humble ourselves before God. So election is meant to give praise to God, um, not to uh, make us boast. I see the New Testament presents election as an encouragement to evangelism. Isn't that strange? Election is presented as an encouragement to evangelism. What does 2 Timothy 2 10 say? I got it in your notes. What does that say? Paul's saying this. Yeah, he says, I, I endure every, you remember Paul endured a lot of things, right? All kinds of suffering, misery of all kinds, nearly killed, stoned, and everything else. And uh, why put up with all that, Paul? Well, I do it for the elect's sake. 
that they also may attain the salvation that's in Christ Jesus. Because when he's doing this, uh, he may not know who the elect are out there that he's preaching to or whatever. But he knows somebody out there is elect because God said there's a, there's, there, there are the elect. And so Paul preaches, and he's willing to suffer for them because this is part of evangelism. He's, uh, he's thinking, well, these people will be saved one day. They're going to see, you know, his actions are helping contribute to this, you know. They play into this whole doctrine of election. Now, I mean, election is something God did from the foundation of the world. Nevertheless, Paul's actions are playing into this in time and history. Okay? Grudem says, it is, it is if someone invited us to go fishing and said, I guarantee you that you will catch some fish. They are hungry and waiting. So, to make a long story short, when you, go, when you witness to somebody or when you witness to people, you can think this. You can think, you can think what I do. I'm such a poor witness. I wish I had a better system. I wish I could evangelize better. I wish I knew more. I wish this. I wish that. I wish I was better at what I do here. You can think all that, or you can think, you know, somewhere out there is a, there's an elect. God's elect I'm going to talk to. Maybe God will let me talk to. I'm going to talk to people, and maybe all of them are not elect, but somewhere out there God's going to save somebody in time. You know, he's going to save somebody for sure, somewhere, or several somebodies. So when you evangelize, think that. This person I'm talking to could be one of God's elect, you know. And God's going to save, it's a guarantee he's going to save people. There's no doubt about that. And he's going to use us to be his witnesses. So we should be encouraged to evangelize knowing this. What encouragement is that? All right, any questions about those? How, how does the New Testament present an uh, election? Presents it as a positive and a good thing, not a harsh thing, not a cold, heartless thing, none of that at all. Okay? If people present it that way, chalk it up to the people presenting it that way. That's not what the scriptures say, okay? Number four, we, how about correcting misunderstandings of the doctrine of election? Correcting mis, there's a lot of misunderstandings of the doctrine of election. Uh, needless to say, it's often misunderstood, often maligned. We, have to need, we need to correct these misunderstandings, or maybe you always won't correct misunderstandings. You can try. Wendell? They're not, yeah. Long story short, they kind of changed up on me. They tried to make me, they tried to take what I was talking to them about, the doctrine of election, and change it um, um, uh, crazy, right? Um, but they don't understand it, right? They don't understand, just because, like you said, um, here, A, in the next picture are four correcting misunderstandings of the doctrine of election. You know, the, the guy who I was talking to, Why would God? Why would this guy think God's a God of love? By the way, Wendell, what do you think? Why would Why would he say that? Um, why would he say that statement? Because, uh, because he read the Bible. Yeah, and that's all. About you think he read the Bible? Yeah, they're not. If he had really read the Bible, he would have seen all sides. Right. Is what I'm getting at. Go ahead, Jimmy. I was going to say that. 
Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I understand what they're, I understand where they're coming from. I do. I really do. thought about this a lot, but um, what, uh, several things. First of all, you know, I grew up in a, with an Arminian-type background. I didn't grow up in a Calvinistic system or anything like that. So I heard the things I heard along the way. I heard practically nothing, by the way. For all intents and purposes, I heard nothing about election. Okay? Only a couple times did I hear anything about it. What I heard was, and I'll tell you later on, God looked down the quarters of time and so on. I'll tell you about that later on when we get to that point. But, but uh, I didn't hear anything about it at all. And so, but when I started, you know, thinking about it and reading the Bible and hearing about it a little bit, and then I, came, I told you I came across Ephesians 1 and I was just reading. And I was perplexed that it talked about being chosen for the foundation of the world. I thought, you mean God chooses people for the foundation of the world? And I, and I didn't like it at first. I didn't like that idea. And so I wrestled with that. And then I read, eventually, over time, I read uh, R.C. Sproul's book, Chosen by God. And in the first chapter, it's titled, I think, The Struggle. This is R.C. Sproul, right? The guy, the great Calvinist and all this stuff, you know, hardcore Calvinist. He says, when he first encountered this doctrine, he struggled with it. And I think a lot of people struggle with it. I get that part. Here's what I don't, here's what I don't like, though, when people say, oh, God loves everybody. He should, uh, he should be saving everybody. Well, first of all, he doesn't, everybody in the world's not saved, number one. Number two, we know the Bible says a lot of things. So so-called Christians that tell me this stuff. I know good and well what, something about Christians. Many Christians, so-called, they don't read their Bible. I know this is true. And so when they say things, it's, re, it's a reflection of their own brain or what someone said. Somebody in the pulpit said something they heard. They think it should be this way. It sounds logical for this to be this way, you know, but the scriptures don't say that at all. So you, you, we're, we're talking about correcting misunderstandings of the doctrine. Yes, sir, man. Yeah, it's, it's, it's true, man. Definitely. And uh, we'll talk about one of the uh, misconceptions is what's not fair. But let's start with A. Election is not fatalistic or me mechanistic. Um, some people say that election is nothing more than fatalism. 
fatalism is that human choices are just meaningless. They don't mean anything at all. You know, if God ordains something, whatever he's ordained is going to happen. That's just the way it is. And that's the end of it. End of the story, okay? Uh, Grudem says, therefore, it is futile to attempt to influence the outcome of events or the outcome of our lives by putting forth any effort or making any significant choices because they, these will not make any difference any way at all. By the way, here's an illustration of this. The last two elections, presidential elections, I heard different people talking about voting and not voting. Well, I'm not going to vote because I don't like these people that are running. I don't like this person. I don't like that person. And so they, they were Christians. And they said, I'm not going to vote, therefore, was their conclusion. And they said, the reason I'm not going to vote is because God's sovereign. He's going to do what he wants to anyway. I thought, wait a minute. You're neglecting the, I'm just giving an illustration here. You're neglecting the, the, the responsibility of people. You're, you're, you're pushing the sovereignty of God. Yes, God's sovereign. Is he going to put in place whom he wants ultimately for whatever reasons he wants? Yes, okay. But however, he also says you're responsible to do certain things on the planet here. And so you're neglecting the responsibility of it. Therefore, their view was hyper-Calvinism. Now, they would never say that, you know, hyper-Calvinism, which is going past the point of what, what you should go to. So this is the same thing here. That, that's just an illustration of what this is saying when it comes to salvation. Well, you know, God's going to decay, sarah, sarah, whatever will be, will be. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I can't do anything. It doesn't matter what I do. We had a guy who went to this church that uh, had that view, hyper-Calvinism. And uh, he came to a Wednesday night Bible study. He doesn't go here. He hadn't been here in a long time. And uh, he was causing some disruption in the church, talking to different people about strange things. And uh, finally I talked, hey, look, man, you can't go around telling everybody a bunch of stuff that's controversial all the time, getting everybody riled up about stuff. And, and then uh, he was in our Wednesday night Bible. And I liked this guy. I did like the guy, actually. And, uh, but he had this argumentation he kept bringing in. And... Uh, one Wednesday night, he was at our house before the Wednesday night Bible study, and he said, no, it was, uh, yeah, maybe it was during the prayer time. We always have prayer time. We have requests. We pray, and then we do, we do the study, you know. So he said, well, why are you having these requests for, prayer requests? I said, so we can pray for people. Well, why are you praying for people? Well, because God said to, and so on and so forth. There's need. Well, you don't need to pray. God's going to answer. He's going to do what he wants to anyway. And he told me, and he sat there with me for 10 minutes talking back and forth about why we didn't need to pray. See, that's the kind of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the sovereignty of God only and neglect my responsibility as God has clearly laid down in the scriptures again and again and a thousand times to pray, right? So people, a lot of, there are people that think this way. Uh, fatalism, and then mechanistic system, that's got to do with an impersonal universe. All things are determined by an impersonal force. And uh, by the way, all these things uh, I've told you guys are drawn out of different theology books, like especially the two. I, I wanted to do MacArthur's theology book since it was new and came out. You know, we were trying to go through that, and then I ended up back in Grudem, and I ended up here and there. Those two mainly we're using, okay? Anyway, so all things are determined by impersonal force. The universe operates in a mechanical way. This is, this is really good for evolution, isn't it? That's what they think. There's no God or anything. People are robots or machines, you know? So how do we answer these charges? Well, mechanism. You know, things are impersonal, right? There's an impersonal force that controls the universe. Well, is that what the Bible teaches? God's personal, right? That is what it says. He, he has a personal relationship with people. Uh, election in the Bible is never taught as impersonal. It's always taught as a personal thing or a great thing or a good thing. He even has mercy upon the wicked, people that despise him. 
I like if, uh, Ezekiel 33, 11, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, that the wicked turn from his way and live. Even the wicked, he doesn't want them to, to die in their sin. Wendell? It, it's hand in hand with it for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it does, and it or it, uh, it it definitely is associated with evolution without a doubt. So, um, you know, he says he doesn't have a pleasure in the death of the wicked. Jesus gives an invitation in Matthew eleven twenty eight, coming to me, all you laborite, all you the labor or heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Does that sound impersonal to you? These kind of invitations are very personal. I'll give you rest if you come to me. Come to me. Uh, Matthew twenty three thirty seven. Jesus said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This is dripping with emotion. Uh, who kills, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. You just wouldn't do it, would you? I really wanted to. Steve? Yeah, the big push was 1800s wherever it started, but yeah. Yeah, it's right. It came in the same time as higher criticism, that's right. That, that 1800s was not a good century in certain ways. The Spurgeon was around, so that was a good thing, right? There was other bad things that happened this century, <laughs> really bad things. Uh, but yeah, so he says, look, I wanted to gather your children. That's very personal, right? I wanted to, you guys, I reached out to Jerusalem, and, I, and, I, and he cries over the city of Jerusalem and all this, and you didn't care. Very personal. What about Deuteronomy 7, 6 to, 6 to 8? I'm sorry, if, you, if somebody can turn to Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 to 8. We talked about this last week, but this is, I always love these verses right here and pertains, as it pertains to Israel's election, okay? But this is the, this, it shows the character of God in election, period, anyway, you look at it. So Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 8. And then it, it talks about the Lord didn't choose you because you were greater in number. You were fewer in number, not because you were so great, righteous, or anything. You were wicked, but because the Lord loved you, right? He loved you. That's it. And so we don't claim anything at all, but you see God's love in election. It's very personal, not, not impersonal, not at all. This idea of mechanistic universe doesn't fly with the scriptures, okay, and God. And then fatalism. Our choices mean nothing, they say. However, does the scriptures present it that way? Just the opposite. Our choices mean everything, right? Affect everything in our lives. John 3.18 is an example. Jesus says, he who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already. Okay, now we know there's, oh, by the way, another thing about Calvinists, I'm always knocking on Calvinists because I've seen, <laughs> we're a Calvinistic type church, okay? But we can, people can get carried away and Calvinists can, can so, you know, everything in the scripture, when they read the Bible, every single word and verse has somehow got to be forced into election or a system, of, you know, somehow of Calvinism. We've got to push it all in this little system here. Whereas, just let the scripture speak for itself. Just let it speak for itself. And don't try to force it to do anything, you know, except what it actually says and then look at it as in context. And, and so here he's saying, look, is he, the scripture talks about election, but here he's talking about human responsibility. He who believes. This is the other side of the coin, right? You've got to believe, he's telling the people. If you don't believe, you're condemned. You believe or you don't believe, it's on you. And then uh, uh, 
you know, instead of trying to throw one or the other way, you keep you hold of both um, because these things have eternal consequences. Uh, when it comes to preaching, we have to preach the gospel, right? God doesn't save people apart from preaching the gospel. Romans 10, 14, how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without a preacher? So if I don't, if, if, if I'm talking about preaching here, when I'm talking about like witnessing somebody anywhere about the gospel, wherever you're at, in whatever setting you're in, you have to be behind a pulpit, but if you're doing that, you know, that's your responsibility. That's my responsibility to do that. And if I'm not doing that, we could say, well, God's going to save whom he wants to save, you know? You don't, God's going to elect to put in an office of whom he wants. We don't have to vote. Same reasoning. God's going to save whom he wants to save. We don't have to preach, okay? I could say that. Well, why am I doing this for? Why am I witnessing anybody? God's going to save people anyway. Well, he's going to save them through the preaching of the word, through somebody's preaching of the word. So it's not fatalism. Um, the Bible doesn't put it that way. It never does. That's people putting it that way. B, election is not based on God's foreknowledge of our faith. That is another misconception, not based on God's foreknowledge of our faith. You know, as I said, you, I, and I have heard this, God looked down the quarters of time, and he saw that Steve Couture would believe on him. And so, based on Steve's decision, he, he said, okay, I'm going to elect him to salvation. Wow, that's really convoluted language when it comes to appointment or election, right? Because this is based on what Steve thinks in the future, not what God thinks in the past, right? Um, and it doesn't work that way. How does it work? Well, under B, we have number one, foreknowledge has to do with persons, not facts. Has to do with persons. Go to Romans 8.29. Romans 8.29 again. Or I have it in your notes. People like to use Romans 8.29 to deal, to say that God looked down and foreknows certain people would be saved. But what does the verse say? It says, for those whom he foreknew, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image that of his son. It says those whom he foreknew. He foreknew certain people. Does it say he foreknew certain facts about certain people? It doesn't say anything about what he knew about them, per se. It just says he foreknew them, period, okay? Um, and uh, who's doing the action here in this verse? God is. Is there people doing any action at all? Is Steve Couture believing or something? No. God's doing the action. God is foreknowing people in advance, okay? Foreknowing people, which, by the way, we'll look at it later, has to do with more than just an advanced knowledge of people. It has to do with a personal, intimate knowledge uh, of people. He intimately knows them. Like, I think the verse uh, in the Old Testament that's parallel, first verses that are parallel to this even talks about Adam knowing his wife Eve in an intimate way. Is that is one word that's used to describe these kind of things. So it's an intimate knowledge of people. Uh, by the way, some people believe that God elected groups of people, elected the church as a group, as a corporation, to be saved. That's another interesting idea. Carl Barth said that, I think, originally, but God elected all Christ and all people in Christ. They'll say, Ephesians 1, 4, Paul says he chose us in him. Chose us in him. So they'll say, well, it's a corporate election. All the church was elected together, whoever these people are. Um, does that, is that how it is? Well, why not? Yeah, it's not, it's not out. I think a pastor I used to be under believed that, actually. There you go. Oh, that's very good. That's a good verse, Bob. That's a very good verse. Huh? Yeah. 
Yeah, they're all, all one big happy family here. But Yeah, that's good. Uh, he whose name is, is written in the book of life. What does that verse say exactly? Revelation? Yeah, it's not the name of the church. He who belongs to Grace Bible Church of Tampa. By the way, we had an elder here today from Grace Community Church in California. Did you know that? Spying on us back there. No, he's a good guy. He was here to see Ken Fuller. But he was here today. Yeah, so we're not chosen as a, a group is not chosen, you know, a group of people. I know it says he chose you, I think, in Thessalonians, like a plural, in a plurality sense. Yeah, of course, but he's talking about believers in general there. But there's other verses, like, remember Matthew 15, 20, 15, uh, 13, or whatever it was, chapter Matthew 15. And Jesus offended the people, and the disciple says, don't you know what you just said offended the Pharisees? And he says, what, every plant, singular, that my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. Well, that's the idea of a singular plant, okay? So not a corporate, uh, you know, garden. So uh, every plant that God hasn't planted, it's it's not going to work. He's going to be rooted up. What about Paul? Acts 9.15, God was saving Paul, and he told Ananias, uh, the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine. He, singular, okay? He saved Paul on the road to Damascus and makes a big deal out of that. Uh, There's other verses we could look at. Bob pointed out a really good one. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the body of Christ, but it also says we're members in particular, individual members. And by the way, when people were say, are saved, are they saved corporately? God works corporately in the lives of everybody together at the same time or something? He said, where, he, he, Acts 16, the Lord opened her heart, right? Lydia opened her heart to the gospel, that one person there. There was others there. By the way, there were other people there listening to the sermon Paul was preaching, whatever he was saying. But they, she, he opened her heart individually to it. Everybody has to have an individual experience of salvation so it's not a corporate deal and the for, the word foreknowledge more than just knowing in advance like i said uh it's illustrated by a couple of old testament verses like amos 3 2 uh amos 3 2 god says of israel you only have i known it's that i think it's your dots it's real intimate knowledge you only have i known of all the families on the earth in other words i've known did he did, did god only know about israel and no other nations that's the only nation he knew about. He didn't know about Babylon and Egypt and all. He knew about all those nations, but he only knew Israel intimately in the sense of electing them, that his chosen people. And then Jeremiah uh, says, uh, I can't remember what it says, Jeremiah 1.5, he was chosen to be a prophet for the foundation of the world and uh, whatever it says. So somebody can look up Jeremiah 1.5, we can read that. Um, but in Israel's case, God had a special regard to Israel, special regard for them, special love for them special intimate knowledge of them and such a, to such a degree that he says, you're mine. I'm picking you. I'm choosing you. And then God tells Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5 what? Jeremiah says, I'm too young to speak and all this. and I'm a youth. What is yeah. Yeah. That, that word again. I knew you. Same thing as Amos 3.2. I knew you in the womb. I knew you intimately. I, I want you to be my man. You're going to be my prophet. I didn't he knows about everybody in the world. He knows about everybody in the world, in the womb. But he knew Jeremiah in that intimate sense. I'm, I'm calling you to, to do this job, you know? So this corporate election business in the New Testament, I don't see that it flies. Uh, foreknowledge, 
has that mean? But predestination, by the way, means to decide beforehand, to mark out beforehand, marking out certain individuals beforehand for salvation. And I know these things are difficult. I get this. I get it that election is difficult. But what does the scripture, the question is always, what does the scripture teach? What does it teach? And that's the only thing we should be interested in, Jimmy. Like some from the burning, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I remember the head deacon of the church that Mike was fired from, who was in glorious reign over for seven months at that church, uh, because of preaching the scriptures. It wasn't just election, he was preaching the scriptures, and they didn't. Ooh, that hurts, and that... Wait a minute, what's this expository preaching business? Oh, you go verse by verse in a context, and you tell us what it actually says. Well, that's... Do we really want to hear this? You know? And then you talk about election, because the thing about expository preaching is there's a lot of things about... You have to, con you're, you have to confront every difficult truth and deal with it. Sorry, you've got to deal with it. Not always a simple thing to do, right? So he was doing that, and then, you know, they got him on election. We don't like you because you're preaching election, although Mike wasn't pushing that. He's just preaching the next verse. And the head deacon there said, you mean to tell me that you're saying that God is the one behind this election business and that my daughter, he had a, he had a granddaughter, my granddaughter may not be saved because of this, because God is in charge of this and he's the one who does the election? I'm like, what are you talking about? You're, you're, you, 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 want, you want to be in charge of salvation instead of God. Are you going to make a better decision? What are you going to do? How did you make the decision you made to begin with, if he did? Because God chose you. Because God enlightened you and gave you understanding of the gospel. You would have never made that decision. He doesn't understand all these things. And so he said that, and I'm like, wow. Uh, uh, but that's, you know, that's, so we have to realize that God is, is the one who's behind these things. And then, by the way, Wendell, I don't think, I think Spurgeon liked to talk to election, like to talk about election to people who are unsaved, I think, from the pulpit. But I don't think we should do it personally. Now, I'm not going to freak out if someone does it. That's their business. But probably not a great idea to talk to unsaved people about that one-on-one. They don't even understand. The, they haven't got the first base yet, theologically. They're, on the on deck, they're not even on the on-deck circle, okay? Uh, and so they're barely in the dugout. And so to approach them with election is whew, just start with simple truth, gospel, you know? Yeah, I forgot about that, that illustration. Yeah, that's right. Good illustration. You're coming in thinking, you don't know anything about theology. You're being saved. Hey, I'm coming to Christ, right? And then you, like you just said, oh, well, God, I didn't know this. God is the one behind all this, ultimately. You know? It's a good point. All right, number two, Scripture never speaks of our faith as the reason God chose us. It's not, it's not our faith as the reason God chose us. Look at Romans 9, 11, 13. Or, and someone go to Ephesians 1, 5 to 6. This is illustrating, uh, you know, we, we looked at this last, now this is a section by itself, chapters 9 to 11 Romans, this is another ball game right here, okay, 
But Romans 9, 11 to 13, we looked at this last week, talking about the Esau and, and Jacob. Though the twins were born, not yet, the twins were not yet born, had not done anything good or bad, they had done nothing. They were just twins right in the womb, uh, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the, old, the older will serve the younger. This is before they were even born, right? Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated now. Um, and so the, what I'm getting at here without going to all this, Romans 9 through 11 is another, another series of sermons and study. But is that God's election stands, is his purpose in election stands. It's not our faith that God chose. It's not because of our faith foreseen faith. What does Ephesians 1, 5, and 6 say? Does anybody have that? I know we're going back to Ephesians 1 a lot, but Yeah, so it's not because of our faith, forcing faith, it's because of his purpose that it might stand. Uh, number three, elections ba election based on something good in us, if it was based on something good, it's like our faith, that would be the beginning of salvation by merit, would it not? Uh, he, you know, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, you know, the famous verses, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's not of yourselves to get to God. Had it been of ourselves, that's the beginning, then I'm meriting my salvation to some degree, like the Catholics believe in contributing to their salvation. Now, God's grace at baptism, yes, when you're six months, uh, when you're an infant, you know, starts the process, but then even then, it's, uh, they're an infant, <laughs> even then I got to contribute stuff along, well, along the way, our expert resident, resident Catholics, former Catholics back there, Claudette can tell us more about this, but but yeah, that, that's, that's not what the scripture says. Number four, predestination based on foreknowledge still does not give people free choice. Let's say God looked down the quarters of time and said, I see that Steve Couture is going to believe, therefore I elect him. Well, here's the deal with that. Um, he's going to fix that choice from eternity after he looks at Steve's choice. He's going to fix it, and that can't be changed in time. They can't be changed in time again to say, well, wait a minute, I want to back out of this deal. You can't change it. It's too late. It's been fixed. Even on the opposite end of it, it's fixed. Um, number five, conclusion, election is unconditional. It's unconditional. Anyway, you slice it, election is unconditional, meaning that it's not conditioned upon anything that God sees in us, making uh, us worthy of choosing us. So we talk about uncondi you know, the five points, talk about unconditional election, right? Because it's not conditioned based on anything in us at all. This is just totally of God. As, as Spurgeon has often said, salvation is of the Lord. You know? As the scriptures say, salvation is of the Lord. Spurgeon said it too, but the scripture said it first. Um, all right, any questions about that? I'll tell you, let's just move on here. A few more minutes. Um, That's a good question, and one of the reasons they say it, if you'll go to John chapter 1, 
they'll say, uh, yeah, I'm with you on this, by the way. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. There's no way we can respond to God because we're dead. The word is dead. And as, they, as, you, as you may have heard, not sick or ill, you're dead, spiritually dead. Therefore, you cannot make a move. Can a dead man do anything at all? He's incapable of anything, period. Uh, and dead people who are dead spiritually uh, can make no move toward God whatsoever. But they like to use verses like John 1, 9. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. So they talk about provenient grace. God gives everybody provenient grace into this world, which means you have the ability to choose Christ. Because everybody gets us going through, what's that? From this context. From this context. And there may be other contexts, but this is their big one right here. And uh, Wendell gives the uh, authoritative answer, heck no, okay, <laughs> he says. So, yeah, um, enlightens every man, whatever that means. It doesn't say anything about grace or anything else at all. It doesn't say anything about prevenient. Again, they, they do this. They'll, they'll say, well, this verse teaches so-and-so, but that's not what it even says. Like uh, Romans 8, 29, the God foreknew that we would be saved. It just says those whom God foreknew, period. That's the end of the, the text. <laughs> and here he lightens every man, which maybe means Romans 1. He, everybody knows that God is there or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, there's no way we can get prevenient grace out of this. So, I, I mean, that's just really reaching. Yeah, Steve? Oh, my goodness. Steve's been a former everything. Go ahead. Yeah. True, true. You know why it's a good point? For other reasons, too, because all of us, because we can have a system of theology we believe and hold too dearly, right? Someone can have taught, has taught us this all our lives or whatever, and, uh, and we believe something. But what if part of that system is a little bit off-center, according to the scriptures, that is? Well, and we hold to it, you know, with all our might in an argument or whatever debate. Um, and so if we do that, we're, we're going to get it wrong. I'm trying to defend something that's just kind of a straw man. It's not, it's not really true, but I think it's true. I want it to be true, and therefore I'm going to defend it. That's why when we look at the Scripture, we have to do one thing. Put aside all our, we have to do our best, I know we have preconceived opinions, to put, our, put aside our preconceived opinions and say, what does this say in this context? I do not care what I think it says or anybody thinks it says. What does this actually say? You know? And you have to look at it and look at it and look at it again. You, know, you don't want to come up with some new weird theory that no one in church history has ever come up with before. You don't want to do that. I'm saying, though, be honest with the scriptures. Let the scripture speak for itself is all I'm saying. All right, objections to the doctrine of election. A, election means we do not have a choice in whether we trust in Christ or not. That's an objection. We don't have a choice in whether we trust in Christ because God's elected everybody. But the scripture never states that or never implies it even. It never says it anywhere at all. That's, again, a human reasoning. Over and over again, it's, it's the gospel is proclaimed to people and they must willingly accept it or reject it, one of the two. It's put on them again and again and again in Scripture. It's put on them. Remember the uh, Matthew 19, 16 and 23, I have the reference down, the rich young ruler? And Jesus goes to him, or he goes to Jesus, what can I do to have eternal life? Good master, and that's an interesting passage anyway for many reasons. But then 
uh, he goes away sorrowful. He says, well, you know, sell all you have because your problem is you're rich and that's blinding you to everything else. Sell all you have. And he's like, no way I'm not doing that. And he goes away sad, you know. Well, Jesus, what does Jesus say? Well, I guess he's not one of the elect. He didn't say that. He just, he says, it's hard for a rich man to be saved. Why? Because riches are blinding him to the truth. He can't see past it because all this wealth is, he wants the wealth. I get it. He wants the wealth, but that's going to stop him from salvation, right? And uh, um, you look at other verses uh, from John, John 3.18, 3.36, uh, you know, he that believes is going to be, is, is going to be saved. He that doesn't believe is going to be condemned. And 1 John 5.12, he who has the son has life. Who does, who doesn't have the son does not have life. And uh, all these are human responsibility. All of them. So you have a life. All right, we're going to go ahead and close right now because it's time to start the service here. And we will, you guys are dismissed and uh, find your few and be happy in that few. That's all I can say.